Welcome to this edition of the Positive Populist podcast. My guest today is Chris Buskirk. Chris is a frequent guest on The Next Revolution, so if you watch that show, you will uh, recognize him. But Chris, I'd love you to just tell our audience who you are and what you do. Uh, I am Chris Buskirk, as you correctly uh, named me, which I guess as my parents did, but I am the editor and publisher of American Greatness. Uh, you can find us at amgreatness.com. We are a, uh, an online magazine uh, dedicated to, uh, to, uh, to conservative ideas, to, America, to a restoration of American constitutionalism, and uh, have been very encouraged these past few years with the ideas that uh, the president has reinvigorated in this republic. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you the question I ask all my guests. Okay. I think I know the answer, but, you know, I don't, I don't want to presume anything. Chris Buskirk, are you a positive populist? Uh, I am a positive populist, and I like the fact that it's on a podcast because all of those P's must be driving the sound guys crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, populist is one of those words, right? It's uh, it's sometimes it's an epithet, sometimes it is a cudgel, and sometimes it uh, is used as a way of uh, commending someone too. And I think in this current political moment, uh, we can uh, be proud to say that we uh, we we will take up the populist mantle. Why? Because what we're talking about here really is uh, just trying to restore those ideas that were what this country was founded on in the first place. And uh, today that means populism. Why? Because there are two classes in my estimation. There's a country class and a ruling class. Mm -hmm. The country class is all of us. The ruling class, uh, well, let me back up. The, the country class are the ones who just want to have uh, these uh, their rights respected, that want to be listened to again, and not to be ruled over, lorded over by sort of a distant, often unelected bureaucracy. And uh, if that's populism, I can get behind that. All right, very cool. So, so you, when you were talking earlier, and you were talking about American greatness, for example, the publication and so on. Um, that language is very closely connected, obviously, to President Trump's then candidate Trump's slogan, "Make America Great Again." That notion of American greatness. How closely would you say you and your uh, publication and your organization are aligned with President Trump specifically? Well, so uh, well, I'll tell you. I'll, I guess I'll answer that question this way. So, when we uh, launched the publication, which was in June of 2016, mm -hmm. uh, we did not know who was going to win. Uh, the President Trump was then candidate Trump, and uh, what we liked was that there were a set of ideas that people were talking about that had just been ignored for maybe a generation uh -huh. uh, on the right. This is not I mean, leave the left alone. I mean, on this on the right, these were ideas that were just the foundational ideas uh, of, uh, of really of American politics ultimately became of conservative politics that had been ignored, papered over, turned away from, in some places, uh, outright repudiated. Foreign policy is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we liked those ideas. We liked the idea that President Trump was starting to talk about them again. Mm -hmm. And so we are aligned with those ideas. And uh, that uh, is for right now while President Trump is espousing them. And so to the extent that he's supporting those ideas, we support uh, those policies too. And we just have been happy to support the president. If he uh, were to change his mind, mm -hmm. we would still stick by those ideas. Okay, great. So you've used we quite a lot. Who, who's yeah. the we? Tell us about well, that. Well, as you know, as an editor, we get to use the royal we. Okay. Right? <laughs> but no, no, but uh, there, are, uh, there are several of us. There, there were three of us who uh, started... Uh, 
uh, on day one with American Greatness, myself, uh, yeah. Ben Boychuk, uh, managing editor, uh-huh. uh, Julie Ponzi, she's senior editor at American Greatness, and uh-huh. since then we have uh, we have grown, and so there are more we's. Than, and how, than how that. did you come together to start this? So project? we had known each other for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, my, Julie Ponzi and I had known each other. For many years, mm-hmm. to be embarrassing to say how many, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, we had known each other for a long time through a uh, through a fellowship program that we did l- way back when with the Claremont Institute, uh-huh. and uh, Ben Boychuk had worked at the Claremont Institute subsequently. But the point is, is that we came together um, through uh, originally through education uh, yeah. about uh, about America's founding and just stayed in touch off and on so over we, the so years. So the Claremont Institute is very interesting. So I've just got to know the Claremont Institute. They're, yeah. they're, they're, we're, we're speaking in um, in the Fox Bureau in Los Angeles uh, where, I, where we have just um, uh, done an episode of The Next Revolution. Mm-hmm. And the Claremont Institute, for those who don't know it, is not far from here. It's in Los Angeles. It's, it's, it's an interesting... Um, tell us about that. I think well, yeah, it's interesting. It's, like, it's in Los Ryan Angeles. Ryan Williams, for example, who's who's also been on the show, uh, is currently the chairman of I think. Yeah, that's right. The Claremont Institute, so in Los Angeles terms, it's, I don't know, 20 miles from here, which means, I don't know, two hours or something. Right, exactly. Right? <laughs> uh, but the Claremont Institute was founded in uh, in the late 70s, and it, uh, it's, it, it's, uh, its tagline is for the Claremont Institute for the Study of Statesmanship and Political Philosophy. So it has mm-hmm. a very mm-hmm. uh, well-defined mission in mm-hmm. life, which is to not only to uh, undertake scholarship about statesmanship and political mm-hmm. philosophy with a specific focus on how that applies to America, to America's founding, to American statesmanship, mm-hmm. uh, but to teach that. Uh, and that is why they, uh, that is how I got involved with uh, the Claremont Institute back when I was an undergraduate uh, student. I wound, I wound up working there uh, That's later. A, where, where were you an undergrad? I was at Claremont McKenna College. They're, they, Is there they, any they connection? Both, there's no connection other than that they're okay. both like located in Claremont, California. The, oh, is, so that is, is, a, that is the connection. That's the there's, connection. A sort of there's no institutional connection. But How interesting. So Claremont McKenna connection. is just a regular co- college. Uh, well, you know, uh, the, the alumni would beg to differ. They, we would say an extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinary college, but, but yes, but it is a And what college. were you studying there? I studied, uh, I, I got a, gov- I got an undergraduate degree in government with, uh, with a real emphasis in political theory. Right. And then while you're there, you came across the Claremont Institute while, or how did that While I was there, there were two, uh, there were two professors in particular who were, uh, who were tenured professors at Claremont McKenna who, uh, were also affiliated with mm-hmm. the Claremont Institute. And, uh, I got drawn into that web and have never left. And so is Claremont McKenna, like a, a, one of those places which, which has a kind of philosophical leaning towards the, the to conservative ideas or is it unusual to have Teachers there. Uh, so, so historically, it did. Uh, sadly, that is much less true now than mm-hmm. than it was in the past. But uh, so when I was a student there, the government department was, um, I would say, largely right of center. There were a number of, and I don't mean not two. I mean there were a number that I could name a half a dozen um, tenured professors who were very much right of center. Mm-hmm. With the, you know, who uh, 
the term would have been appropriate at the, at the time, but were Reaganite when Reagan okay. was, was in the was in office, who took the American founding seriously. I uh, thought it was a good thing. Uh, the economics department, for instance, was very free market, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to at the time, you know, I guess it's still true, uh, economics departments tended to be Marxist. Mm-hmm. Uh, this economics department was not, so there were uh, all kind of, you know, it covered the spectrum, but all free market, yep. capitalist-oriented uh, economists there. So it was, uh, even then, it was So is that why you were drawn to it? Did you, you knew that reputation and it, that's why you wanted to go it, it? It was, yeah. I mean, it was a combination of, uh, of two things. It, it was that, and it had a very good academic reputation, which it continues to have. You know, if you, the people look at the U.S. News uh, rankings, you know, it was a top 10 private liberal arts college, so it had a very good academic uh-huh. reputation, but it was definitely the only one that had this sort of right of center. So you a- knew academic. that that's where you, so so when, where did you grow up? I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh-huh. And you, so you, and you sort of thought, I, I know where you, you had your sort of political philosophy broadly understood. I did. I did. I did. No, I, yeah, pretty well. I mean, for as well as you can, I suppose, at that age when you're, when you're applying to to college. Can you remember what, what sort of sent you in that direction? I, my father, easily my Uh father. I mean, that is, uh, that's, that's an easy one. So I mean, politics and current events and current affairs was something that was history were just things we discussed as a family at the dinner table. And, uh, it just, I was drawn to it. I was interested in it. And and this isn't a facetious question. It's a, a real question, which is like, and, and it was your father because you agreed with him or because you were kind of rebelling against him? Uh, well, I agreed with them. Right. I, I agreed with them. No, he taught me. He taught me a lot. And but really, my entry point into being interested in politics wasn't politics per se. It was history. I was oh, very interested in history yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a, as a kid. I read a lot of history. My father, uh, it, you know, he studied history, and it was always it's always just sort of been an avocation for him. And so that was just things we talked about. And uh-huh. I was interested in that. And if you study history, you wind up being drawn into well, that's politics. really exciting. You should say all that because. It feels to me well, not actually exciting is not the wrong word. I'm I'm feeling a sort of sense of excitement just hearing you talk like that about history, and how it can shape your thinking. But because I recognise that that yeah. sort of thrill, but at the same time, it's it it, it emphasises what a disaster it is that the sort of teaching of history has sort of turned into this total. I mean, I don't even know what haven't got the words to describe it. I mean, it's not really taught at all in the way that. It, very we little history be, is taught in primary kind of, and secondary it's, it's education. It's a social justice it's lens all, that is applied to everything. Everything you just don't learn matter. what actually happened. You learn it through the kind of prism of of some kind of modern day political vantage point. It, it, everything is done from the. You're absolutely right. Everything is is done to the extent that it's taught at all. It's taught about uh, about power relationships and about how somebody in the current political environment can uh, make hay out of a grievance that grows out of some historical incident. And that's uh, that's no way to do it. I mean, people, uh, those things can certainly be true. They're true way less often than is taught in schools. Yeah. But you, when you're talking about uh, primary and secondary education in particular, but I think it's true of even of uh, undergraduate education, you just need to teach the history. Here's yes, what, what happened. Yes. All right, and people don't, uh, they just, kids just don't get that. I, I had a, I'll, I'll tell you, I had a, a discussion with somebody on the, uh, on the left who's relatively well known. Um, which is why I, I will not I will not gender this person and right. I will not okay, uh, I, I will not Being name very this person. Careful. This is great. Okay. Um, 
and I was trying to engage uh, on something. You know, we yeah. just, we were at a event and it just was trying to have some type of, uh, as my wife likes to say, you know, we're trying to have a society here. Let's just try and be civil and polite. (laughs) (laughs) And I was trying, I was engaging on different subjects that were pertinent to a political discussion. Mm -hmm. Recent history, let's say the past 20 years, Mm -hmm. 30 years of of, uh, American political history. Now, this is somebody with with a big megaphone. Right. Had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. And I tried multiple. Do you mean pets. not aware of the facts? Not or, aware of the or facts. Or not connecting with you on the idea that it was not important. aware of the facts. Not wow. aware of the facts. Well, okay, give us was, a lot of kind of facts. Like so, I mean, I was talking. So a couple of things. So I was talking uh, about, uh, for instance, on uh, some things, some facts about uh, historical immigration policy in this mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. So um, you know. Not, I mean, I sort of alluded to it going back to sort of, you know, we have this uh, great wave of immigration from sort of 1880 to 1925. Mm-hmm. Then we have the 1925 Immigration Act, which mm-hmm. basically almost stops legal immigration down, yeah. from 25 to 65 or 64, actually. Uh, and then there's the Kennedy Immigration Bill. Mm-hmm. And then there's the and then there's the Reagan Immigration Bill the in 1986. Yeah. And then how this all plays into what's going on now. And then some of the numbers about legal and illegal immigration over the past 10, 20, 30 mm-hmm. years. This was all a revelation wow. to this person, a complete and utter revelation, because all this person knows was the talking points. And this mm-hmm. person is very adept at talking yeah. about the talking points. Yeah. Uh, a wall is immoral. Uh, you know, why can't we care about this one, that one or the other one? Trump is a racist, but actually has no idea about you know, who's come here when. You know, mm. so there was I didn't know that there was sort of a German and Irish wave in the mm. middle or late of the uh, 19th century. Didn't know about, for instance, this blew my mind about the Bracero program uh, in the 50s and 60s uh, with Mexican immigrants. Mm-hmm. Just had no idea. And I'm thinking to myself, how do you? And by the way, this is somebody who, in media, is not shy about telling everybody <laughs> the way it is. Right. And I'm thinking, how do you presume to be telling other people when you just landed here from the planet Mars, basically, have no idea yeah. about the political or social history of what you're talking about, and yet you presume to lecture other people about what ought yeah. to be done? Yeah, I think it's, it's such a great point. And actually, one of the things I'm really delighted by, just with my own children, you know, my, my eldest, Ben, particularly, he's now really, he's 11, and he's really getting into it and wants to re- read and find out and just it's just the story just the facts you know we literally just watched um a a series a documentary series on the second world war in color it was amazing i mean i learned so much just from watching it oh yeah and so i'm really happy that he's doing no you don't get any of that at school i mean like you know we watch it as a family like sort of tv time you know and, and amazingly he wants to watch and, and his younger brothers and you know not quite as into it but still they want to watch whatever a 14 part documentary about the history of the second world war great but it's such a tragedy that this is just not normal anymore for people to learn exactly say what happened this is why i think there is such a huge and and quickly growing market for things like what you're doing here with podcasting and uh, and on youtube because people realize after they they get out of school whether it be they get out of high school they get out of college and maybe right then or maybe 5 or 10 years later they realize Hold on, not everybody, unfortunately, yeah. but a lot of people realize. Hold on a second, I don't know these things. I that's went, a brilliant I, observation, right? And then they go back. Some subset of people go back and say, "I want to know more about American history. I want God, to know more about politics." That's such a smart observation. And now I've they can never go and get thought it. of that before. 
So, wow, see, you're the person who turned me on to the Khan Academy. Right. Okay, and the Khan Academy, is, I think, is a, a fantastic resource, but there's all these other uh, resources, sort of in a way sort of related, especially on history, especially on politics, but though on other things too, science for sure. What did, tell us, I, I think the audience might be interested, what are the, some of the history ones that you, you, you think would be interesting? Well, I'll give you, so there's, uh, there's something called, I'll just tell you mm-hmm. things I listen to, but there's something called the British History uh, Podcast, mm-hmm. uh, which is now, boy... I'm going to say the, the the guy who does it, he's up in Oregon. He's probably been doing it at least six or seven years. Right. And he started in the Neolithic era. Okay. And I want to say right now he's probably in like maybe the 16th century. Wow. Okay. okay. But as you get close, as you get, as you come forward in time, yeah. there's, that history is much so denser. the history of Britain. The history of Britain. Yeah. Well, what about, is there a, 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 what would you recommend in terms of American history? Well, so this is, uh, there's a market hole here. There is not a great American history podcast, at least not one that I'm aware of. Uh-huh. If I, anybody is listening to this, fine, knows of one, I would be, I would love to hear one. But yeah. I think that's actually uh, a big opening for somebody to do that uh, really, really well. Because there's the British History Podcast, which is great. Um, the BBC does In Our Time, which I think is fantastic, mm-hmm. uh, which covers all kinds of uh, different things. And that's, uh, that's very, very good. Uh, Barry Strauss from Cornell does a great one on uh, on the ancient world, on the mm-hmm. Greeks and Romans. But the point is, is there's there's all this stuff out there. And you were talking about World War II. Um, the BBC did uh, did the World at War. I don't oh know yeah, if you remember that? Yeah. That's a great documentary series on World War II with all these um, interviews. They did that, I guess, in the '60s or early mm-hmm. '70s. So a lot of the uh, people who were involved were still alive, and they interviewed people from all all sides. Wow. And that's available online in a number of different places, it's YouTube it's and elsewhere. Such a great point that this sort of foundational role of history mm-hmm. in, in in forming political. Um, judgments and 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 shaping your philosophy which i want to sort of bring it back to that and ask you about i just want to get back to this story as it, your history as it were so you're um i got your 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 claremont mckenna and then you then you're you connected with the claremont institute right claremont and then what did you become uh, an academic a political no so claremont mckenna uh went to graduate school at the claremont graduate school was working at the claremont institute uh, during that whole mm-hmm. uh, period i'd had this um i went through this fellowship program I was saying before and then i got an actual paying mm-hmm. job at the claremont institute while i was while, while i was a graduate student and um as a graduate student i realized something very important for graduate students to realize uh which is oh no I don't want to be an academic. Okay. Right. <laughs> and that was, of course, the trajectory that, that I was on. And uh, so I grew up in a very entrepreneurial household. I moved back to Arizona after uh-huh. graduate school and was an entrepreneur for 20 years. Doing what? what was uh, various finance-related businesses, uh-huh. uh, the reinsurance business, uh, tax credit financing, but all sort of finance-related uh-huh. things. And then uh, about three and a half, well, where are we now, 19? So, yeah, about three and a half-ish years ago. Yeah. Um, I was at a sort of uh, crossroads career-wise, and um, I had I had all the things. I had time, motivation, and an opportunity uh-huh. uh, to get back involved in politics in a serious uh, way, and I was only too happy to take it. And um, I can say honestly that uh, that it, it is purely because of Donald Trump, because mm-hmm. he put it through a lot of things up for grabs. Uh, politically so was um, it so what was the sequence is it like you saw his campaign get going that we, we talk about like you know summer of 2015 right so right? late so late summer of 15 and you're watching that 
and you're in Phoenix, are you? In yeah. Phoenix, yeah. And you're and and you're thinking, this is really he sparked something in you. The way he was talking about stuff, what was it? That- so I was very so I was very interested. Um, I've, well, actually, I'll tell you, I've got a great story about how I got interested in Trump in the first okay. place, because I was originally drawn to Scott Walker or Ted, oh, yeah. Cru- or Ted yeah. Cruz early on. Yeah. Sadly, Walker, you know, fizzled, obviously, yeah. and then Cruz is, uh, you know, they went, mm-hmm. the, they went the distance. Um, but I was at, um, after the first debate, mm-hmm. the first Republican debate, which I guess would have been like... That was very, August, I think. Yeah, August I guess first week of August, yeah. maybe of 15. We're at a family dinner. My brother-in-law uh, was very... Doctor, very mild-mannered uh, person, very intelligent person. Um, we're talking about, well, what do you guys, whatever you think about the debate, and everybody's sort of going around the table, and he says, uh, you know, I really like Trump. Mm-hmm. And at first, I did not take him seriously because he's they did. Who's their, saying this? My brother-in-law. Okay. So again, highly intelligent, highly educated uh-huh. doctor, mild-mannered. Like, I mean, a, a definitely a Republican, right of center person um, but I thought boy this there's a disconnect between these two personalities between my yeah. brother-in-law who's great and Donald Trump who's you know uh, you know he's always on 11 and everything's yeah. always you know everything's always just over the top and I thought okay why and so he explained to me why just and it was this this authenticity factor is the way that mm-hmm. Trump talked about America and about the middle class and about uh, immigration all these different issues and he said yeah, I just haven't heard people talk about it this way mm-hmm. uh, or at least not for a long time and i thought was he a okay. republican yes yeah yeah okay. and i thought this is really interesting because if my brother-in-law is thinking about it this way he can't be the only one mm-hmm. and so this is what that was my cue okay i need to pay attention mm-hmm. here and as a result of that i started paying attention trump gained steam and gained more and more steam and i saw the the, the legacy institutions of movement conservatism mm-hmm. what i what i call conservatism inc um, yeah, I saw them just not understand yes. at all, and uh, just basically embarrass themselves over the. Well, they're still doing it. I was going to say over the next several months, but who, just I, who? Which kind of organ? Who, what, oh well, I mean, uh, so you think about the Weekly Standard, which yeah. now folded. Uh, you know, went out of business because they impaled themselves mm-hmm. on on Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think about uh, National Review, for mm-hmm. instance, which I grew up reading and have a great uh, mm-hmm. historical affection for. But, you know, they run this against Trump mm-hmm. uh, issue in January of uh, 2016. Mm-hmm. And there are their their marquee writers are still crazily like, anti-Trump, mm-hmm. just reflexively mm-hmm. anti-Trump. I mean, it's the sort of thing where if they were if they were for something for 20 years and they find out Donald Trump likes yeah. it, too, they're like, OK, forget it. Okay. I don't like that anymore. And uh, and that was when uh, I realized that there was really an opportunity for uh, to create a new conservative media, uh-huh. um, and that because it was it was needed and there was uh, there was a demand for and it. And did you think new conservative or did you think more specifically pro Trump? I thought specifically about the ideas about uh-huh. the about the underlying ideas about the political uh, policies that were associated with it mm-hmm. that I that I had been thinking for quite a while had basically just been uh, f- at fir- first ignored and then repudiated mm-hmm. after Reagan you know basically under the bushes and so the, what and was the the really different then in your uh, in your estimation then what did you apart from his style yeah. right and a lot of people. I mean, I, I think looking back on it, that was one of the things that first I had very similar um, reaction, which is this is this so refreshing to mm-hmm. see somebody operate this way, free of all the 
kind of fakeness of, of traditional politics. Um, and I remember thinking, and actually the thing that really, uh, the, the, the sort of very early on that I thought, wow, this is really great, is his tax plan, which no one ever sort of thinks of back, but his tax plan he published right. very soon after. Uh, the, the, the first policy document, I think, was the immigration plan. Mm-hmm. Obviously got a lot of attention. Um, but then the tax plan came soon after, and with this incredible simplification, in particular the very low corporate tax rate, 15%. You know, he was like, this is like so pro-enterprise, right. unashamedly so in a way, and so simple. So, but, you know, you could say, well, that's kind of in line with Republican, conservative orthodoxy. They may not have expressed it in such a simple way, but, you know, it wasn't a radical departure. What do you think was different policy-wise? What re- When you say he was saying things that hadn't been said. What are you thinking of? So I think about it for, I, I, there, there are three things, but I think they're all united by one basic idea, which is, which is that Trump talks about government um, and about this country in a, in a very different way than, uh, than, than Republicans have done for way too long. Mm-hmm. And that is to say that he talks about uh, government um, having a responsible to put American citizens first and to put American right. interests first. And that seems totally unobjectionable on the, right. to, to 99% of people, I think, or at least 99% right. of Republicans. Uh, they, you, what are these? What is the government supposed to put American second? You know, this yeah, this was the this is always the question that nobody's. Very uh, interesting. That's a brilliantly smart summary, actually, because it unites the three policies. Well, I mean, maybe we can think of more, but immediately, yeah. the what that makes me think is you've just captured the three areas of greatest divergence from the from the consensus up till then which were trade immigration and the wars and the foreign policy that's right that, that's so a, those are that's it, those right. are the things that were really different right and actually putting america so america first as a slogan or phrase you know campaign phrase was used by him by donald trump to describe his foreign policy but actually it it's the it, it's the umbrella for trade and immigration absolutely right and those are the best examples of how he's different. Those three things together. Those are the three things. That's what yeah. I, I. Those are the three I always go to. And it's what I was going to say. I yeah. mean, it, it is you know a pro-citizen immigration mm-hmm. policy. It's a pro-worker, pro-middle class uh, trade and economic mm-hmm. policy. Mm-hmm. And then it's putting an end to these ridiculous messianic mm-hmm. uh, military adventures mm-hmm. that have cost uh, that have cost the country something. Well, since two, since two thousand one, since nine eleven, something like six trillion dollars yeah. uh, plus yeah. uh, plus. Uh, all these dead and wounded and all the havoc that wreaks on people's families and for what and for what i'm not I'm, well i'm certainly not going to say it did no good but um well i mean but, we're but, still but bogged you, down in it all this I is mean, the and, problem and, and you still got the That's same right. problems that are being used by the same old voices to justify the same old endless intervention always intervention that's always the solution and the and the 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 just unbelievably grating irony here is that uh, you talk about uh, the the neoconservative wing of the Republican Party, uh, and there will there is no life they're not willing to uh, will, not willing to sacrifice, and no amount of money they're not willing to pay to defend the borders of Iraq or Syria, and not one red cent to defend America's southern border. And it's <laughs> it's unbelievably frustrating. And it's interesting because the way that um, that's become now wrapped up in the whole Trump phenomenon and 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 people's reaction to him that even to point that out which seems such an utterly reasonable thing to say can can be characterized will deliberately be characterized by some as being racist and xenophobic and all the rest of it 
that I I just laugh. At no, this. I, I know, I, know. I, I hear it all the time, but I just laugh because, you know, it, that's such a silly thing to say. It points to the poverty of their arguments, mm. that that's the only response that they have. That if that's, if that's all you can do is say, is cry racist every time uh, somebody says something that you disagree with, then you are not winning the argument. And as you know, uh, uh, Mrs. Thatcher, I thought, had one of the best, uh, as probably more than one of the best uh, political observation, which is, which is this, which is, First you win the argument, and then you win the vote. Yes. And uh, our job is to try and win the argument. So do you very much see that as the role of, of the journal? A- absolutely. Our job is to win the argument. Our, our job is to, uh, is to put forward mm-hmm. uh, an, an intelligent and principled uh, display or, mm-hmm. or uh, a, a, an intelligent and principled uh, argument for why these ideas are what people came to expect from mm-hmm. America, what Americans believe America is about, and how those can actually so be who, put So the into... Journal of American Greatness, so who, who are you aiming that at? Who should be reading it? So I, I always say, people ask me this all the time, I always give, I always give the, the same answer. Uh, so we're middle brow, mm-hmm. and we want to be middle brow. So, we're, so and I, I say that because so often everybody wants to be highbrow. I don't right. want to be highbrow. Okay. Uh, we want to be smart, and uh, and we have this idea of you know who's our reader. Our reader is anybody who is, and I know who our actual readers are. Mm-hmm. I mean, we get quoted in White House emails pretty mm-hmm. regularly. We get, and I get emails from you know somebody who's a you know a plumber in Wichita mm-hmm. actually all the time, and I try and answer. You mean White House email. emails? Um, from you know policy people there or they, yeah the well range. they put they put out a daily summary of things that they think are important oh, okay. and interesting so mm-hmm. and we get quoted in there a lot which is fantastic mm-hmm. and I love it but I think of our I think of our um, our reader as being somebody who is wants to be informed they mm-hmm. might be a policymaker mm-hmm. uh, or they might uh, be a mom in Springfield mm-hmm. uh, but there's somebody who cares about the country they they want to uh, they want to learn something mm-hmm. it's not. Uh, it is not written to try and show off to as how smart uh, to ha- as to how smart the writers are. It is written right. in a way to try and be, uh, put forward mm-hmm. uh, the best case as most the most persuasive way uh, possible. I've always thought the same thing, which is if you really understand your argument, if you really understand your case. You can put it forward in a very simple, straightforward way. Mm-hmm. You only have to try and get fancy when you don't really know what you're talking about in the first place. Definitely, I think that's absolutely. I mean, I've, I've re, I, I, yes, I remember that. This, remind, I might have said this on another podcast because it just made me laugh so much. I remember um, one time when I was working with with David Cameron. It was before the election, I think, in the UK, but when he became prime minister and we developed our policy agenda. And one of the things that i was pushing very heavily was giving people like obviously the uk you've got a much more um centralized system um and heritage of services like health care and education right. and local social services being delivered by the by the government and the state you know that's mm-hmm. just the, you know what it's like um and uh one of the things that that we were really keen to do is to give people more choice even if it's public sector even if it's provided by the state that there should be way more choice so individuals could parents could choose the school and whatever we wanted to sort of break open what we consider to be these monolithic monopolized Mm -hmm. these public sector monopolies basically and open them up and create markets so that people could still be funded by the taxpayer because that's what people uh, wanted to see but you'd have this choice anyway so we had this and i just remember going to see 
a former advisor to Tony Blair, in fact, mm-hmm. a policy advisor. And it just was such a brilliant example of the way they use language in these kind of hilariously overcomplicated <laughs> ways. And I remember him, he said, um, I'm really, you know, actually very excited about some of the things you're doing. I, I really love um, your, you know, your, your this this new emphasis on continuous open door contestability. And I just like remember thinking, <laughs> I literally didn't know what he's talking about. Like, what do you? He said, well, you know, when and he'd sort of go through. I said, oh, you mean like choice? <laughs> like, okay, right, I get it. I like the, but the, but what, you this, know why you use one word when you can use but four? But they do. That is just such a. It's so true. They make everything so complicated. All right, so I just want to sort of close with this, which is that. So you've got you've got this going on. You say you've got the attention of the administration in the sense that um, you you know there's there's a kind of connection there. Um, do you see yourselves as kind of shaping the policy agenda for the kind of future of this administration? Do you see it as a movement that you're going to help sustain in some way? How do you see the well, future? I, well, our mission really is to try and uh, is to try and rebuild and reinvigorate the American right, uh-huh. uh, and that is uh, that ha- that has to be done. We're only one part of it, but uh, that means that there. there uh, there have to be new institutions. We're one of them mm-hmm. uh, that are, have a very clear set of uh, a, a very clear understanding of what those ideas are and how they're applied in practical politics. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some things that are just they can change. You know, there's they, there's a principle and then there's the policy. Immigration, something for instance, there's a principle at stake. They're putting the American citizens mm-hmm. in interest first, but at different points in time, you might think that more or less immigration is a good idea. Right now, yeah. less is a very is absolutely necessary given the huge amount we've had in the past yeah. 35 years. Uh, but we want to put we want to rebuild the institutions that may that create an environment that is friendly towards. Uh, our type of candidates mm-hmm. that are to the America First type of candidate. Candidate. By what do I mean by America First? I mean the, those candidates who understand that mm-hmm. the, the issues of trade, of immigration, of uh, of rebuilding the the family unit. You know, mm-hmm. I, this is an issue I'm particularly interested in right now, which is. You know, the total female fertility right now in the United States has dropped to, meaning the total number of children per female is down to 1.7. The replacement rate is 2.1. And and some of these issues that Trump has been talking about, about trade and about immigration and about about foreign policy, they've all, I think, conspired Mm -hmm. to undermine... The, the strength uh, of the family and the, and, yeah. and our ability and desire to reproduce ourselves as a nation. And that's problematic. We need to really think hard about that. I so agree with you. Um, and it reminds me, you know, that my, my sort of quick, you know, summary of what I, what I say every week on the show and what I think of as positive populism, my sort of version of this, I always say pro worker, pro family, pro community. That's, that's, that's what Absolutely I think right. it is. And, um, and so I think it's very clear, Chris Bosker, that you are a positive populist. And it was great fun talking to you. Thank you it's very much. my pleasure. Much. Thank you. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.